It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hi, welcome to, I feel like I said that really loud. Hi, welcome to the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast. I am your host, Carrie. And I'm Larissa. Hello, hello. So how have you been doing, Mama? I've been doing good. You know, we finally got everything moved into our new house and um, now I just have to unpack it. That would be great, wouldn't it? Is this the house near where Tiger Woods got in his accident? Yes. Yes. In fact, I'm thinking of going over and doing a second pass to see if there's anything crazy that I can find in the brush. Not really. That's now, I know time. you've been following that. What do you think about how the fact that they're keeping the cause of it kind of secret? Do you think he accelerated on purpose? I don't know. I, I just, oh God, you know, the more I drive this road every day, he was going really fast. He had to, he had to have accelerated. If you just keep your foot off the gas, you could hit like 60, maybe 65. But I think he had to be accelerating a little bit. I, I honestly think he was tired and who knows, maybe he was on some painkillers for his back. I don't know. It's an unexpected twist in the investigation of the horrific crash that nearly took Tiger Woods' life. On Wednesday, L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva announced the investigation is over and they know why Woods crashed, but... We have reached out to uh, Tiger Woods uh, and his personnel. We need... uh, There's some privacy issues on releasing information on the investigation, so we're going to ask them if they uh, waive the privacy... And the other stuff that's in the news right now that's out your way, because we have East Coast, West Coast here, (laughs) which I love the fact that we can cover both coasts because of it. Yes. Is what did you think about the new Harry? Yes, yes, yes. I watched it. I really watched it. I couldn't do it. You took one for the team there. It was it was very hard to get through it because, okay, I know he's been through a lot with the death of his mother. And I was probably one of the biggest Diana fans. And I was probably one of the biggest Harry and William supporters when their mother passed away. I felt that was just a horrible, tragic event for any child to go through. And I understand that, you know, he got help and he's been in therapy. I felt this special was to really hit home the fact that he's been in therapy and is currently in therapy, but it felt a little too um, rehearsed because my question was, if he's been going through this therapy and it's all about mental health now, why could he not get Megan the help she needed when she was so down in the dumps and suicidal? I mean, I, I, my heart aches for her that she couldn't get that help. And I remember him saying, I don't think you can go. And I said, I can't be left alone. So hold up, hold up. There's several, right conver- now. There's several conversations. There's a about conversation. It. Meghan Markle opened up to Oprah Winfrey about her mental health struggles. You've said some pretty shocking things here, revealing. I wasn't planning to say anything shocking. I'm just telling you what's happened. Okay. I'm sorry if it shocked you. It's been a lot. I'm a little shocked. And revelations about Megan's suicidal thoughts left the iconic talk show host stunned. Look, I was really ashamed to say it at the time and ashamed to have to admit it to Harry, especially. I I feel really bad for the queen because here's my thing about the special. So Oprah was interviewing Harry 
And then there were three or four other stories where Oprah was not interviewing these people. So I really feel that they're kind of trying to play off of the Harry, Oprah, Megan, Oprah relationship. And it didn't ring true to me. These other stories were so absolutely, one woman had such bad OCD. She's an Olympian. And she has, she's a like a boxer, I think, an Olympic boxer. She had such bad OCD. They filmed her washing and washing and washing her hands over and over and over again, like serious OCD. Then another guy was homeless. He was having mental problems. There was even another one. I, I can't even remember the third one, but like serious, serious mental issues uh, that really people need help with these things. And I like the fact that they're drawing attention to it. But I don't know if Harry is the right person to be drawing attention to it or Oprah. I think maybe they should have brought in a specialist, maybe a therapist. Maybe Harry and Oprah could do the intro. But I think they needed someone else to tackle this. I wasn't really impressed with how they he kind of wallowed in the pity mode for a good half hour of that special. And then it got to the real meat of the meat of the bone. And don't get me wrong. I totally think that he's going through really tough times, really rough times, you know, making a break from the family has probably brought up a whole bunch of emotions he felt when his mother passed away. So I don't doubt that. That's not what I'm doubting. Like reawakening trauma. Yeah. Just sitting down and listening to somebody. There's joy in that. (laughs) I can put a smile on, but inside feel completely broken. Now that is from the Me You Can't See. That's a new series on Apple TV Plus. It premieres today. The multi-part documentary was co-created by Oprah and Prince Harry. The series is about mental health told by real people, some famous, some not. They all struggle with their emotional well-being. Oprah and Harry not only created it, they both appear in it to tell their individual stories. But they began talking about this project more than a year and a half ago. To make that decision to receive help is not a sign of weakness. In today's world, more than ever, it is a sign of strength. From the first moment I had a conversation with uh, Prince Harry about what were his two most important issues facing the world, and he said climate change and uh, mental health. And I started to tell him about this series I was doing with Apple TV+. Plus. He said, oh, and if you ever need any help with that series, let me know. And I went... What did you think when he when he volunteered? What did I think when he volunteered? Well, my first initial thought was, oh, yeah, this is like, let's have lunch sometime. Yes. But it's fascinating to me that you two are very different. Yes. It, it, yeah. We even say that in the series. At one point, I'm talking about growing up with, you know, no running water in an outhouse. And he was like, well, I am the exact opposite of that. So which goes to show that. It doesn't matter whether you were born in a castle or whether you're, you know, born in an outhouse or born to people who didn't really want you. We all have this spectrum of our mental well-being in common. I think just at some point, if he's been going through therapy that long, it's kind of hard for me to keep hearing him blame, blame daddy. I, I really struggle, especially when he was also in other interviews complaining that daddy cut him off financially. Yeah, I kind of struggle like, oh, did did you not get your way? You know, like, were you used to getting your way or being indulged as the youngest? Like, I really kind of struggle to hear a grown man do that. Yeah, a grown man. That's the key word. Yeah. At some point, you got to kind of have to move on. And 
And it sounds like a lot of this trauma was reawakened when him and Megan got back together. Well, here's the thing. They're, they're adults and they made the decision to step away. And I think they should just leave it at that. Like you don't have to air everyone's dirty laundry. Okay. So you think the Royal family is racist Then just step away from that and stay out of the limelight and do all your work and good deeds behind the scenes. They can make a big, big impact with mental health and mental illness if they do it. Um, just, just leave that behind. Leave the royal family behind. That's what they wanted. And I just think they should do it because I'm really getting tired of hearing, you know, daddy and the royal. Well, and you keep thinking you have to top each disclosure that you have. But in a nutshell, that's how I felt about that. I, I think it had a good message. I just felt that maybe Oprah and Harry kind of um, the message kind of got lost in that portion. I feel like Oprah and Gail, though, have something to gain by jumping on this train. They're both, one's trying to do that news thing and get the inside scoop, bring ratings, and Oprah's trying to launch her little Discovery Plus channel or platform because OWN didn't do the numbers. I think she owns OWN. The, yeah. Her Oprah network thing didn't do the numbers like she thought. So I don't know. It's just kind of like, I feel like in the... I don't know. There's just... I think it's going to be the pinnacle of her programming might be. Yeah. Harry and Megan. I don't know how Netflix feels about that, but who knows? Maybe she's involved in the Netflix deal too. I have no idea. Ah, okay. What else? Okay. So I, there's a new book coming out and I actually think I saw the person on Twitter and I can, I uh, am in the process of ordering it. So I'm really excited about it. I'm not excited about the topic. It's just something that's different that I hadn't heard of. Would you tell me? Okay. It's sex sterilization and a socialite's downfall. Oh, God. A new book examines the 1936 trial of New York City heiress who sued her mother for tricking her into getting her fallopian tubes removed so she could get her hands on her daughter's inheritance. What? Back in the 30s, like you had the Kennedys with Rosemary, which by the way, my grandmother was one of the people that right after the surgery, she was one of the people that was there help take care yeah stop before she was moved out west yeah because it happened on the east coast chief among his concerns was his eldest daughter rosemary when she was born the doctor was late and the midwife more or less pushed the baby back in didn't want the baby to be born until the doctor was there and the baby was starved of oxygen which meant that rosemary had a mental age of about 11 for the rest of her life as a youngster rosemary was keen to enjoy the same social life as her friends but fitting in was difficult my father used to tell me that when they went to these social parties in palm beach and the like my uncle jack would see his sister rosemary kind of shunned because she was different. And my father said, your uncle Jack used to go and sit beside her or stand and talk to her instead of all the fancy people at the parties. Because of her intellectual afflictions and learning disabilities, she also suffered from quite a bit of anxiety uh, and she began to lash out. Uh, her temper tantrums became more violent and they would have to call in a doctor to try to sedate her. For her parents, such conduct was not only embarrassing, but potentially damaging to the family. Joe and Rose 
did not want imperfection in their children. During that time, there was a stigma attached to having children with mental illness or intellectual disabilities. And they didn't want anyone to know because it might affect the chances for their sons and their careers. In 1940, Joe arranged for Rosemary to attend a summer camp in Massachusetts. He hoped the experience would improve her behavior. But instead, it worsened. Terry Marotta's mother and aunt were in charge of the camp. My mother and aunt were frantic about her behavior because they felt that, that her presence was compromising the safety and well-being of everyone else in the camp. Soon, the camp's owners even feared she'd become pregnant while staying there. Rosemary was very beautiful. Some said that she was the most beautiful of the Kennedy women. She was tallish for her time. She was voluptuous. And Rosemary is wandering off into the woods at night, and um, they become extremely fearful that something is going to happen to Rosemary, and they can't spend all their time watching her. After three weeks at the camp, matters came to a head. Terry's mother, Caroline Sullivan, wrote to Rose saying her daughter would have to leave. This is the letter now seen for the first time. She was so difficult of adjustment in our group of normal young children that for the well-being of everyone, I found it necessary to give my own constant attention to her. The situation turned out to be so impossible that after giving it every effort and a thoroughly fair trial, it seemed necessary to request from you the end of her stay at camp. Rosemary left soon afterwards and wrote back to Terry's mother. I'm so sorry you had to lose me. It's not my fault, darlings. Have everybody write me a short little note. I've been crying over it. I know you all loved me so. I'm going to be a bit tired from all the studying this summer and the fall. My love to all, Rosemary. After Rosemary's removal from the camp, Joe Kennedy decided on drastic action. Without Rose's approval, he paid doctors to perform a new type of brain surgery on their 23-year-old daughter. In November 1941, she underwent a prefrontal lobotomy. The procedure at the time required drilling into the side of the skull. The doctors uh, strapped Rosemary down on the table and they asked her to count back from 100 and to sing nursery rhymes. And when she could no longer do those things, they knew that the operation was complete. But that operation was mishandled. The surgeon damaged a larger part of Rosemary's brain than was necessary. She couldn't walk or talk. She was incontinent. She never could take care of herself again. It was a tragic, tragic experiment that went terribly wrong. After the operation, the severely disabled Rosemary was sent to live in a psychiatric institution. It would be another 20 years before her mother paid her a visit. Rosemary was not there at Thanksgiving when the family gathered. And the first letter that Rose wrote to all of the children after Thanksgiving, Rosemary's name was deleted from the letterhead. Rosemary's effective expulsion from the family established a Kennedy code. One that future generations felt they had to live by. 
My grandfather, I think, set the tone when the tragedy of my Aunt Rosemary's lobotomy um, happened and he banished her from the family, he himself not seeing her at all for the rest of his life. And then you had Jane Fonda's mother was put in an institution. You had Zelda Fitzgerald was. You had the one heiress who she had even been married at some point, but then she just lived with dollhouses and dolls. It's almost like she regressed. So, So I wonder how much medical manipulation was going on during this time period because there was no real oversight. And then like Howard Hughes became cut off from everybody. He left all his money to the Mormons. Oh, God. The his driver was one of them who married the one woman on the family member, like the descendant, married the one woman from Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Wow. Hughes descended into one of the most bizarre episodes of his life. In December 1957, he told his personal aides that he wanted to screen some movies at a nearby studio called Nosex on Sunset Boulevard. Hughes stayed in the darkened screening room for more than four months, never leaving. He used a telephone to conduct business and ate a diet of chocolate bars and milk. But most of the time, he just sat in his own chair, often naked, watching movies reel after reel, day after day. Hughes issued strict orders to his aides, writing instructions on yellow legal tablets. Do not look at him, do not speak to him, only respond when spoken to. Around Hughes were dozens of boxes of Kleenex, which he continuously stacked and rearranged. There's a famous memo he wrote. It was called the Kleenex Directive. And it was a lengthy memo on uh, how to use Kleenex to protect yourself from germs. You're supposed to use eight to 10 thicknesses of Kleenex in order to open a doorknob, for instance. As his stay at Nosek stretched into months, Hughes relied more and more on his painkillers. His personal hygiene deteriorated rapidly. But at the same time, he became more and more obsessed with avoiding germs, all manifestations of obsessive-compulsive disorder. After four months, Hughes finally emerged from the screening room in the spring of 1958. By then, his clothes were soiled and ragged. He hadn't bathed, or shaved for months. He was a mess. The once charismatic public figure had become a pathetic recluse. It has been surmised that what happened at Nosex was Hughes was having a a massive nervous breakdown, but he didn't want to tell anybody, so he kind of, in a way, created his own asylum. And you know, prescription drugs back then were a crapshoot. It's like, here, take this. We have no idea what it's going to do to you. That, so many people were institutionalized because they put them on the weirdest drugs. Oh, my God. It would have been better taking ayahuasca and going down to a yurt and sweating it all out. Have you ever done that? Hell no. I hate vomiting. <laughs> I know. That's the part that really like scares me. I'm like, I don't think I want to pay somebody to make me throw up and then trip like I'm like on mushrooms or something. I hate that same feeling with five tequila shots, you know? I could totally be there. I would be there. Oh my God. I have to get this book too. That's really, really disturbing. So she was the product of his second marriage, right? 
and I think he had an affair with his with her mom or whatever. He had married her in 1918. Hewitt died in 1921. He divided his fortune about four million, but today it would be almost sixty million dollars between mm-hmm. Anne, who got the majority, and Marion. Anne was the daughter, and Marion was her mother. Mm-hmm. Amid the fallout. In August of 1934, Anne was 20. She went to a San Francisco hospital to get her appendix removed, but her mother also had her fallopian tubes removed. Oh, God. At the time, Anne was still a minor and a psychologist had deemed her feeble-minded. Anne sued her mom in 1936 and claimed Marion sterilized her to get her inheritance. If Anne did not have children, then that money went to Marion. The trial enthralled <sighs> the nation during the Great Depression. Oh, my God. Can you imagine... If when Jake got his appendix out, I had his fallopian tubes removed. (laughs) I know that boys don't have fallopian tubes. But can you imagine? It's so sad. But that's but people get greedy on that stuff. What a bitch. It was great depression too. So of course Mm -hmm. she's like, I gotta get my money any way I can. You know, and on our topic today, uh, we're gonna go really deep into that about money and not sharing sharing is caring isn't there a study that if by like the second or third generation the money's already gone oh i think so i think so i mean there are very few families who have like kept that money afloat there's always one jackass kid who just loses all of his bearings and spends it all which we're going to get into. So we need to cover more current topics, but yeah. So I have one more hot topic for today because we have a special segment probably last year or maybe a few months ago, I had recorded with Jody of reality TV pod. We love to hate everything. Mm-hmm. Total request podcast. Right. Yeah. Her entire podcast empire. I thought I would share about Doris Duke and the possible murder she was involved with. Cause it actually connects with your topic today of her heirs. And that was an amazing segment you did with Jody. So I can't wait to hear it again. Thank you. And then, but I have one more topic because I don't know, I kind of was getting the feeling I could totally see one of the Real Housewives of New York somehow like hanging with this dude. Okay. Tell me, who is it? The restaurateur who induced his lover's miscarriage is back on the Palm Beach scene. So the shame restaurant guy, Josh Woodward, who secretly induced his pregnant lover's miscarriage with an abortion drug is out of prison (sighs) early and he's back in Palm Beach society. A high profile restaurant owner who cooked up a plot to force his pregnant girlfriend to lose her baby will spend nine years behind bars. CBS News Dave Lopez reports from the downtown L.A. courthouse where the victim called Joshua Woodward a monster. I mean, do you not understand that you are a textbook psychopath? And Gail Greaves was just beginning in court today, berating her one-time boyfriend, 43-year-old Joshua Woodward, who pleaded no contest to attempted murder, secretly giving her a drug that induces labor to cause a miscarriage. So you're a sick, sick individual, and you're disgusting, because I would never, ever hurt another woman. Miss Greaves did miscarry in her 13th week. After being given the drug, misoprostol against her knowledge it could not be proven that the drug actually caused her to miscarriage thus the charge attempted murder you told me i had to have an abortion i told you no but you kept begging you were drugging the drink you gave me without my knowledge trying to pretend like you were there for me drugging my food i found out later in my refrigerator you put stuff in the pickles that i eat 
And I was one of your closest friends and have never done anything to you, ever. And you know that. Woodward, who once owned the table at restaurants in Los Angeles, never looked back at his girlfriend. He was given nine years in state prison and must serve seven and a half years before being eligible for parole. It's disgusting. Do you understand me? You're disgusting. Okay, A, how old is this guy? Like in his 50s. B, how old was his girlfriend? Oh, she was older too. And then he had an affair with her for years. And then he had gotten married too during the time of their affair. So he couldn't just use um, a contraceptive? He yeah. had to go like drug her. It wasn't she 13 weeks pregnant too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So he's the man behind burger bar and a partner at table eight. And so he got nine years for this, but he got out earlier and he was seen out dining with his wife, Susie Buckley, a Miami society editor who married him in 2012. And so she stayed with him through everything, the infidelity, the crime, you name God. it. Yeah. And he was out with some PR people. One of them was Tara Solomon, which um, I've heard of her before. And Buckley, who is now a hat designer and Woodward have one child, Alaska, born in 2014. Isn't that wow. crazy? Yeah. So they had their own child. Woodward was engaged to Buckley at the time. He drugged Gail Greaves with an early term abortion pill uh, oh drug, misoprostol. I don't even know how to say that. Do oh, you? my God. Numerous times in 2009. And she had a miscarriage in October of that year. The court heard that in 2016, he hatched this plot after carrying on a six-year affair with Greaves while living the life of a high-flying restaurateur, flying in on private jet between LA, New York, and Miami regularly. He was always photographed with celebs, and he's from a wealthy Chicago family, which had empire that included the storied um, Churchill's Downs racetrack, if you know that. Yeah. In October, in August of 2009, he told him she was pregnant and he demanded that she had an abortion. So his internet search history gave him away. But what's interesting is he didn't actually get sentenced till 2016. Like that's how long that had kind of went. That's how long? So he had a baby with another woman in the the amount of time it took. Yeah, he was with a whole nother woman, like engaged to her and everything. Oh my God. Oh my God. And she had another kid by him too in 2014. That's crazy. I can't believe that. God, I hope. Ugh. Yeah, and he's out and about now, just living his life. Yeah, probably hooking up. I wonder what prison he went to. Did he go to one of those like country club ones? I'm sure it was a club fed, but that's not a federal crime, right? That would be a how do they call it? Like a blue collar crime? Yeah, exactly. But then, do they put them in with the same prison population? Is that murder? I mean, if when did they count that murder for the baby, the unborn baby? Like, when does that? It depends on what state it occurred in. Obviously, it occurred in a state that only gave him nine years because that's... Yeah, I mean, and he got out early, too. And she probably went through... I mean, it had to be super traumatic for her because they probably had to do a DNC and all that mm-hmm. crazy stuff. She probably had to go in for surgery. And then to try to prove it because I wouldn't have, suspect, I wouldn't have suspected that. I wouldn't think accuse somebody unless they outright told me. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So bringing us to spoiled rich people. Um, again, we have the Doris Duke segment that you're doing with Jody. Anyhow, speaking of people who have a lot, right? <laughs> yes. I wanted you to come on and talk about the Doris Duke. And the first time I heard about her, is did you remember when 
there used to be a TV show Dominic Dunn did about rich, yes. rich people in crime. Oh yeah. my gosh, I love even his voice. Like I hear his voice talking as he was an heir to a fortune, but his mother held the purse strings. I don't think he bought. Yeah, I can picture him. He's like standing in a study or something, right? Yes, yeah. yes. It was very much. Yes, it was so mm-hmm. like that. It was almost like a PBS. Yes. Or that Victor, who was the guy with Victor where he looked like kind of like a van, not vampire, but like kind of dark and mysterious, like Twilight Zone, like in his study. Like, let me tell you about the story of the rich and famous. Doris Duke was one of America's richest women for some years around the 1940s. She was the only child of James Duke, and he was credited with pioneering modern cigarettes and was nicknamed the Million Dollar Baby by the press at the time of her birth. Same, right? <laughs> so she was, She was. as a side note, she was born in a five-story mansion on Fifth Avenue. She had a personal Rolls Royce and driver in her early childhood. And Duke University is named after her father. It reminds me of like, I don't know if you ever saw the TV movie, but Poor Little Rich Girl, which was Anderson Cooper's mom. I don't think I saw that, but I know of it. I mean, I know Gloria Vanderbilt and the whole thing. Yeah. So in 1925, her dad died and he left the bulk of his $80 million fortune Mm -hmm. to her. And she was 12 years old. And on his deathbed, he told her, don't trust anyone. So that's great things to tell your 12-year-old on your deathbed. That's going to mess you up. I mean, you're already messed up if you come from that amount of wealth because there's no way you're ever going to be able to relate to people. You just can't. Oh, yeah. No, you can't. You can't. And you're always going to wonder what somebody's ulterior motive is. is yeah, especially when your dad's dying words to you are, don't trust anyone. Yikes. So at the age of 14, she reportedly sued her mother to get her to stop selling family assets, which included the mansion where she was born, and her mother forbade her to go to college. That sounds so typical. I could completely see that happening because I don't even think you probably had the oversight at that time, like what you have now. See, now I was thinking more of like a narcissistic mother dearest kind of thing. Like she doesn't want her daughter to do as well or surpass her, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that too. Or like, why didn't I get more money? Yeah. Or who are you going to be mingling with? Are they going to find out about our lifestyle if you're there? Those lowly people. So she had other scandals that followed her throughout her life, which was a slew of affairs that included Errol Flynn, Marlon Brando, two surfing brothers, not just one, but mm. from Hawaii, General George Patton, and then other people that she was, you know, had run-ins or relations with or scandals involved, Michael Jackson, Imelda Marcos. Wow. I don't know if you remember her. But the, yep, shoes. the shoes. Yep. Yes. I'm like, nobody ever talks about her. And I remember she was like all over the Inquirer forever. Yeah, in the 80s. That was huge. Yeah, and Elizabeth Taylor and Jackie Kennedy famously helped with Duke's Newport Restoration Foundation. And over her lifetime, she tripled her father's fortune, and she'd given a lot to charitable causes. She even started her own organization supporting the arts, which was the Doris Duke Foundation. But scandal seemed to follow her everywhere, even when it was her life's goal to stay out of the press. You know, those scandal rags, the yeah. things that you and I grew up on, this Inquire in the Star. I know, the things that we were like, ooh, read those while you're waiting in the grocery line. 
so you don't have to actually buy it. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> and then you always see the one. Do you remember the one that would always have like alien on the front? Uh, yes. Spotted, you know. After her first marriage ended, she became pregnant and it was speculated that any number of men could be the father. The baby was premature and died. She was told that she should avoid having any more children and is claimed that she spoke with psychics in attempts to contact her dead daughter. Very sad. Yeah. That reminds me of Reagan, Ronald Reagan's wife. She would. Oh, that's right. She got really into that stuff. Yep. Harper's Bazaar claimed that she applied at the CIA precursor during World War II and was hired as a spy and sent to Italy. Mm. She defected when the government did not issue any assignments that interested her. She then started writing for Bazaar in the U.S., as you do. Like, Again, uh, to be rich. Because you don't have to care about, you know, who's going to look up your resume. You're like, I could buy this magazine, so what a, I could buy the government. She also reportedly paid a Latin playboy's wife a million dollars to divorce him. I wish somebody would pay me a million dollars. I know. Just think about that. Even if you really love the guy, you'd be like, I, I mean, a million dollars? Like, we can meet up. She doesn't need yeah, to know. Exactly. Honestly. That was like when I was talking about the shark attack thing, that guy that beat away a great white. I'd be like, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna oh like, my God. Life. <laughs> I actually asked Dave what he would do if, oh, what did I ask him? Like if I fell overboard or something, there was something yeah. around. He's like, well, I mean, you probably swim faster than I do. That was his first thing. You probably swim faster than I do. So I'm like, so you would just hope that I could swim my way back. I'll tell the kids that you love them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this Playboy was known widely for wildly, widely, wildly, ironically, for the size of a certain part of his body. <laughs> Since he was from another Wild, country, widely, allegedly, mm-hmm. the U.S. government helped with her prenup to keep her wealth in the U.S. I feel like this was the same guy that this French. Act- if I'm wrong, I might be wrong, but a French actress. Yeah. She basically worked with the Nazis to try to free him, and then he dumped her. Oh. After she tried to save him. God, men suck, man. Mm-hmm. I think I've read at least twice about husbands whose wives donated like a kidney, or they did like, you know, some sort of transplant or whatever, and then they divorce them. Oh, I could totally see that. Like, because they, they're like, oh, I got a second lease on life. Yeah, I'm exactly. Out. Like, honey, listen, I was near death. I need to do me now. She was also accused of attacking one of her former husbands or common law husbands with a butcher knife. Jesus. She never married again after the Latin playboy and never had any more children. But she did legally adopt a 32-year-old woman who she believed was her daughter reincarnated in the 1980s. Let me tell you something. Celebrity gossip in the 1980s does not compare to today. Do you remember when Kathy Lee Gifford's rest in peace husband was totally seduced by the flight attendant? Scandal. Yeah, they put all the pictures all over the fire and all that. Because they went after her because all she would do is talk about Cody and Cassie. Oh, my God. I didn't even watch the show and everyone knew Cody and Cassie. I think she just recently got married, actually, Cassie. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what she looks like. I have no idea. I think they were blonde. But, yeah, all she would talk about was her husband. That was yeah. huge. She died in October of 93 at the age of 80 with an estimated $1.3 billion fortune. $1.3 billion fortune. Jeez. That she left in the hands of her butler, who joined her staff just five or so years before. I feel like that happens a lot in some of these cases yeah. where people 
did you hear about that Hawaiian heiress? I think like the last princess of, of Hawaii who they're going, her butler, or her state's going after her because now she married her lesbian lover. Oh and so they're upset that now the money might go to her. It's like a big case talking whether she's in her right mind. Well, I'll be looking that up. And I also want to look up where this 32-year-old woman is now. Oh, I, oh, I would love to hear that. She's got to be, let's see, 80s. Not, I'm like, what year are we? 30? Yeah. No, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, the 32-year-old is now 72 years old. Let's see where she is. The same butler that convinced her that her adopted daughter was out to get her, Doris mm-hmm. never ties with her. The butler also encouraged Doris to go through a series of mysterious elective surgeries, including a facelift and knee replacement surgery that left her frail and disoriented. It was after all of this, about six months before her death, when she signed a will leaving everything to him. Yikes. No autopsy was performed, and she was cremated within 24 hours of her death. Duke's lawyer fought the butler for the majority of her fortune and her charitable organization that was worth about $1.2 billion, and he was only left with some of the wealth. Yeah. So they did get most of the money back then? They fought the butler for the majority of her fortune. Wow. But he still had some. So Doris may have been murdered, but charges were never brought against her butler. But Doris has also been accused of murdering her friend, an interior designer, Mm. Eduardo Torella, and she was never charged either. Oh, the tangled web. I know. I always get her confused with the Brock heiress because she's the one that got probably murdered. She went missing with like a, a horse syndicate. Which Dominic Dunn taught me all about, too. (laughs) (laughs) On October 6, 1966, at Duke's Newport, Rhode Island, seafront home, her close confidant and interior stylist died after Doris herself hit him with her car. She would have been in her early 50s at the time. I promise if you come visit me, I won't hit you with my car. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you leave your fortune to my family. Exactly, exactly. Eduardo had worked with Doris on all four of her homes in New Jersey, Bel Air, Honolulu, and Newport. Doris even had living space and rooms that were quote-unquote his at each of her homes so that he could be close at hand when they were working on her properties or when she was advising her on art to purchase. Eduardo, I wish I had money like that. I know. I was watching Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, and she had like two pages of workers that helped her, like body waxer, arborist. Arborist. Oh, well, who doesn't have an arborist? (laughs) Okay. So Eduardo had flown in to see Doris and she was reportedly met him at the airport to pick him up on October 6th. Apparently Eduardo wanted to move to the West coast and wanted to stop working with Doris to focus on his career in Hollywood. His boyfriend lived on the West coast and Eduardo had just finished consulting on a film. His friend said he flew to tell her all of this in person. Why don't you go next? Because I've been talking a lot. Eduardo and Doris had a friendship that lasted around a decade, and he was apparently one of the few people in her life that was a constant. Even fleeing with her from Hollywood to Newport after a lover reportedly broke her jaw, and others claim the two were so close that she never bought anything without his appraisal. But even so, others say she underpaid him and he wanted to move on. He was estimated at making $43,000 the year he died, which in today's standards, would be around $351,000 a year. I mean, I'd take that. But he had just finished his first job in Hollywood, so all of that didn't come from Doris. Mm, Or did it? Right? (laughs) 
Yeah. A gardener working on the premises at the time claimed that the pair had been arguing when Eduardo and Doris arrived at her home, and later when they got into the car to go to an antique store where Doris wanted his opinion on a piece. It's reported that they had an appointment at the store. A close friend of Eduardo was quoted in the Daily Mail saying, or as you call it, the... Daily Bible. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Quote, she hated the idea of him leaving her. When the pair were leaving her home to go to the antique store, Doris claimed that Eduardo had gotten out of the car to open her her home's iron gates and that she slid over to drive through. Now, this is kind of important because I looked up the photos, too, of this. Yeah, Yeah. And the order of how things happened, there's a huge discrepancy. So she said her foot accidentally slipped on the accelerator. The car lurched forward, striking Eduardo, busting through the gates and a fence across the street before hitting a tree and coming to a stop. He died instantly, and the incident was ruled an accident approximately four days later. Now, others that knew Doris claimed she was very jealous and had a quick, violent temper. Obviously, if she attacked that guy with a butcher knife and, you know, offering someone a million dollars for their husband and then divorcing him a year later. (laughs) At the hospital, Doris was being treated for minor injuries and shock. She requested the state medical examiner to be her personal doctor. Effectively, that puts the doctor who would rule Eduardo's official cause of death on her personal payroll. He also put her in an isolated room and made it impossible for state investigators to question her. Two days before invest—I'm sorry, two days passed before investigators could question Doris at her home. She was accompanied by her New York lawyer, business manager, and two German shepherds during the questioning. I know there's dog lovers out there, but German shepherds scare the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, they're like poli- police dogs. Yeah, I mean, because they're smart and they can attack and they yeah. have sharp teeth. But side exactly. note, <laughs> apparently Doris just let her dogs roam free and police had to come to her house a few times because the dogs had attacked people. When police told her to do something about it, she built a fence across the walkway so people just couldn't use it anymore. Oh, my gosh. She really is nutty. Entitled, right? Yeah. In the following months, the Newport police chief retired and bought condos in Florida and other detectives and inspectors who were involved in the case or who even interviewed Doris on the night of the crash got unwarranted promotions. She also donated thousands of dollars in the following weeks to restore historic areas, including the historic walkway, shed, built a fence across, um, let's say, colonial buildings and houses and donated to the hospital where she and Eduardo were taken. So this sounds like a real payoff job, allegedly. Eduardo's niece said to Vanity Fair, quote, she killed him twice. She destroyed his body and then she eviscerated his memory. Vanity Fair also stated in the article that you will link to in your show notes, Duke went on to wage a protracted court battle, refusing to settle with Eduardo's heirs, who had been willing to accept as little as $200,000 in damages. At the time, Duke was making $1 million a week in interest alone on her fortune. Can I just say, I was very impressed with how you said that word, eviscerated. Yes, I I was very impressed. (laughs) I may have tripped over fence and shed, but I got that (laughs) word. Got a million a week in interest. How do you even spend that? I mean, you have to give it away. What are you going to do with it? In 1966, no less. Imagine how much that is today. Probably, I don't 
like a hundred. I see. I don't even know. I have no idea. A hundred times that. That's crazy. Each of Eduardo's eight siblings received only $5,600 in damages after their legal fees and expenses. And before we get into more about Doris, maybe we need to talk a little bit more about Eduardo. Do you want to tell us? Because you're the military lady here. Sure. He had enlisted in the army and was deployed in Europe during World War II, where he earned a bronze star for his service in the Battle of the Bulge. He performed, I know, he's... He performed in nightclubs in New Jersey and he fell in with Frank Sinatra and he did interior design work with Elizabeth Taylor, Peggy Lee and other celebs. So he had obviously a very promising yeah. career, but he was also like a stand up dude too, you know? Right. Those around him said that he always had a fabulous time with him. Do you want me to talk about how batshit crazy Doris was? I do. <laughs> Her godsend co-wrote a book, on a tell-all book about her and said, it's so mommy dearest and said, mm-hmm. Doris gave no second chances. Like, Joan Crawford really should have played her in a movie. Right? She collected she collected people and then she threw them away. Her crusade to stay out of the limelight included hiring ex-FBI agents to keep ex-lovers, ex-staffers, and ex-friends quiet. Sorry, I'm just like thinking to myself, I mean, that's really that just really shows how rich she was because really people are nothing if you could buy and sell people basically you don't know any difference so sure you're gonna be like "Ah, keep that person away here's some money so in the years that followed eduardo's death vanity fair reported quote mysteriously the entire case file for eduardo's wrongful death lawsuit has vanished from the rhode island judicial archives in 1990 the dossier on the police investigation of the case was reported missing from the Newport Police Department. Even the negative of the photograph of the crashed 1966 Dodge station wagon, which made the front page of the paper the next day, has disappeared from the archives at the Newport Historical Society. Even the autopsy report of Eduardo was filed under Edmund and hadn't been seen until recently. So shady. It's such like a small town cop kind of deal. Yeah. It reminds me too of like the DuPonts about how he used to try to like pay and play with the the cops. And then they just let him hole up in his mansion for three days. Like after he killed that wrestler dude. It's they had like a different set of rules back then. Yeah. You have enough money. You can just erase history. Yeah. However, a copy of the police report has since been unearthed. It seems that one of the two official statements given by Duke after the accident was completely fabricated by police and Duke's lawyers. Today, children of police secretaries, Doris's personal staff, and others whose parents were witnesses to Eduardo's death or its aftermath claim their parents believed it wasn't an accident. Others who are relatively close to people who had associations with Doris and her estate say that everyone knew the iron gates swung inward at the home and that Doris accidentally put the car in drive instead of reverse. Other Mm -hmm. staffers have claimed that Eduardo left the car in drive with the emergency brake on, and when Doris slid across, bumped the brake free, and in her awkward position, hit the accelerator instead of the brake when the car lunged forward. I I mean, I could see that, but I'm very surprised that he even had to get out of the car to do the gate. Well, that's the thing. I mean, why why would he even need to get out? And the part with the emergency brake, that's so something I would do. I would totally. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I do, I do struggle with like reverse of board and lefts and rights. Yeah. Like I still have to think left and right, which one my, you know. Right. Well, if he was on the outs with her, why would he be like, oh, you know what? Stay here with this car running. I'm going to go stand in front of it for now. Yeah. Well, rookie police officer, who was one of the first in the scene, gave his recount to Vanity Fair as follows, quote, he believed that Eduardo went up on the hood of the car before it hit the gate. After the gates blew open, Doris would have hesitated, tapped the brakes, and he rolled off. And the rookie remembered seeing blood in the middle of the street and thinking she'd accidentally hit the pedestrian. At that point, he was run over by the vehicle and dragged to the point where she hit the tree. Ugh. Oh, any kind of dragging to me is oh very, God. very, is just really, really graphic to me in a yeah, terrible vicious. way to die. Yeah. So to read more about the technical crime details, missing info and possible corruption, be sure to read the Vanity Fair article that we're linked to, which I love Vanity Fair. I have my own subscription. They used to do really good tell-all stories. But the other thing is, too, is though, sometimes when you get these kind of cases, how many people have to be involved in order for there to be a conspiracy theory? That's when sometimes I also get a little like skeptical of it. Yeah. Cause so many people would have to be involved. But how much money is being shown to you? True. True. Or if, how much are you like, if you got money thrown at you, yeah. wouldn't you go in the evidence cage or do whatever? If it's you enough. Know what I mean, I mean yeah. oh God, I hate to say that. <laughs> Especially when it involves a murder, but also think, if it's your boss and it's your job on the line, your boss is taking yeah. a, a buyout. Well, I was just following orders and they're right. like, well. Well, and if you are a subordinate and they're telling you, like, you have no idea the people that are involved with this, you're kind of thinking like, well, they must know better. Okay, I, I better go along with it. You can't handle the truth. Exactly. So, Jody, where can people find you? Not like they don't you're, don't already know, but let's let's play along. Like you actually have to say this. No, your listeners are way smarter than am I. But if you are into reality TV, I'm talking about 90 Day Fiance, Married at First Sight, Love After Lockup, everything in between there. Great segment, by the way. I want to shine a little light on Doris's nephew, who actually is a nephew by a stepbrother. So it's not a hundred percent blood relative, right? It's a little mixture yeah. in there. Okay. So his name is Walker. Uh, they call him Skipper. Right there, I want to punch someone in the face for naming their child Walker. <laughs> um so we're starting off on a bad, bad foot anyway with a kid named Walker. So as a child, he uh, lost his mother and father. He was essentially an orphan. He was supposed to go to his alcoholic father. Okay, let's start this over. So his, his name is Walker Inman. So he's not, he doesn't have the Duke name, but he is a Duke heir. Doris Duke, the Duke fortune the tobacco air light up for lucky it's light up time lucky strike i think was the cigarettes that they had a big stake in so he was a tobacco heir alcoholic father had died when walker was two and his mother who swiftly remarried and gave birth to his half-sister susan died when walker was six she was awaiting heart surgery shortly before her death and she had written to her attorney 
uh, with her wish that her boy would go to live a life with her sister, Caroline. And she implored, I have it in my will, but I just want to be sure in his short life, he's already had too many emotional upheavals. Instead, Walker was shifted from household to household until he wound up with his father's half-sister, Doris Duke. This dude, they played musical chairs with this kid. It's so sad. It's like Prince Philip. And what what people, I think, today forget is quite where he's come from. You know, he was a, a Greek prince. His grandfather was assassinated. His father, in the year of Prince Philip's birth, was arrested, put on trial, a show trial, uh, and uh, was due to be executed. The family then had to flee uh, the country with the help of the, the British king, George V. They, they stayed on the outskirts of Paris. And before Prince Philip was even 10 years of age, the parents had split up. His father then left his mother. Uh, he went to the south of France. He was a depressive. He had girlfriends down there. His mother had schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and was, was locked up at times, put in an asylum. And Prince Philip then began a peripatetic childhood because his sisters, within the space of about eight months, each of them had married a different German prince of some kind. And so Prince Philip then spent his childhood traveling between his relatives in Germany. That became more difficult with the rise of Nazi Germany and in England. He was sent to Cheam Prep School initially in, in, in England, and he was there till he was 12. And at that point, his one of his sisters, Theodora, who was married to the um, Baden family at Salem, um, where they ran a school, she asked that Prince Philip go to Salem, um, which in some ways was a, a strange decision because it, it was sort of eight months after Hitler had seized power in Germany. But anyway, he went to Germany to this um, boarding school and uh, he was there for two, two, two terms before coming back. And then he was sent up to the north of Scotland where Kurt Hahn, who had founded Salem but had fled to England after the rise of Hitler, he had started this progressive boarding school, um, Gordonston, where Prince Philip was one of the first pupils. He had quite a solitary childhood in that he was at boarding school from the age of eight. His family were all overseas and he was very much left to, to tough it out on his own. He had the great influence of Kurt Hahn, who was his uh, headmaster at Gordonston and was a hugely formative uh, influence for him. But, you know, he never had a home of his own. He didn't have much in the way of families, certainly around him. I, I was shown a visitor's book by his first cousin, Countess Mountbatten, from the 1930s, where he signed his name in the name column, but in the address column, he's put no fixed abode. And I saw that in more than one book. He was conscious that he had no fixed abode. Yeah, no one wanted him. And, you know, Doris didn't even want him either. She, like, pawned him off on so many different nannies. He would go from boarding school to nannies. Like, there was always a nanny. And it was said that he was always getting into mischief as a child. And Doris was, like, beside herself because this kid just couldn't stay out of trouble. And as a 13-year-old orphan in 1965, he romped around her lavish 14,000-square-foot Hawaiian estate without regard for property or propriety. Uh, he would shoot her Christmas ornaments with a dart gun. He set fire oh to, to crates of expensive teak and exploded a bomb in her pool. He was hideously spoiled and stinking rich from three trust funds. One from his father, Walker Inman, 
Sr., heir to an Atlanta cotton fortune, and stepson to American tobacco company founder Buck Duke. One from his mother, Georgia Fagan, the third from his grandfather, Buck's widow, Namaline Duke. Wow, these names. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who left the bulk of her $45 million estate to her little grandson. Altogether, on Walker's 21st birthday, he would inherit a reported $65 million. Now, that was... That was way back when. So in today's time, that would be like $500 million. Um, And Time magazine predicted the boy would rank as one of the wealthiest men in the late 20th century. So already this guy is flawed. He had two failed marriages. So he grows up, you know, he's just partying all around the globe, snorting every type of cocaine from Colombia to Rio to, you know, wherever. You do. Like he's like not the vaccine passport. He's like the Coke passport. He's the Coke passport. Uh, Then he got into like meth. Then he got, they even said uh, he did so many drugs that his, he had these implant teeth and his teeth just dissolved. Even the fake teeth dissolved. So all he had were these metal posts sticking out of his mouth he's literally the stuff of nightmares this is like pre tiger or what is it joe exotic this is like pre pre joe exotic he had two failed marriages before he married daisha i think it's daisha d-a-i-s-h-a dasha daisha in 1983. So how they met was he met her and he's like, oh my god, you live my life. Come sail on my sailboat with me around the world. We're gonna have so much fun. They get to the Caribbean. He's like, oh, peace out, bitch. I'm gonna leave. So he leaves her in the Caribbean (laughs) and takes off and she's like, what the fuck? And so 10 years later, he's like, I made a big mistake, man, dude. Let's go party some and blow some more cocaine, just blow and all that stuff. So they get together 10 years later and she could hardly, hardly believe she was getting a second chance at comfort and happiness, maybe even love. Girl, really? Love? He yeah, deserted you in the Caribbean. Yeah. I can't even judge because I am the queen of recyclers, so I can't even. <laughs> so they had this wedding. Four months later, after they got back together, after 10 years, they had this wedding at um, Greenfield Plantation. Now, his family owned this plantation down in uh, South Carolina, and it said Daisha wore the bridal gown she'd been saving for a decade because she thought she was going to get married 10 years earlier when she was left in the Caribbean. And Walker wore a white tux with a red bow tie. Again, Walker, the name, the tie, red bow tie. Are we going to a prom or are we getting married? Come on. And a holstered ivory handheld pistol, handled pistol. So he was really into firearms, an extraordinary amount of firearms and explosives and all kinds of crazy things. So after the exchange of vows, boxes of white doves were opened, but nothing emerged. As Walker kissed the bride, a caretaker scooped out a handful of dead and dying birds and tossed them skyward, where they fell in a pile on the grass. Ew. That should be foreshadowing, right? That's a bad omen. You're, you're, You're throwing dead birds in the air. I mean, that sentence alone just made me sad and all kinds of things. So they're like, okay, we're two incredibly flawed people. Let's have babies, right? Because that's yeah, what you let's do. Let's make sure we get this gene pool to live on. <laughs> let's make sure we procreate and can you create some more damaged people? They did in vitro, in vitro fertilization right away, IVF. 
Oh, they didn't even like try to leave it up to nature. They were like, no, no we want. And she was like 36 and he was in his 40s. And I mean, she said he was always so upset that his aunt Doris only left him $7 million. And when she died, she gave like a billion to the Duke Foundation, you know, Duke University. That's yeah. who Duke University is named after. If that doesn't say big money, naming a university after someone, I don't know what does. So yeah, that's how rich they were. Ivy League, no doubt, right? Okay, so the IVF worked and they had twins. They have two people to dip into this crappy, crappy gene pool. Twins, poor babies. I know. And it started right away. They started partying again. And a year after their marriage, they separated. Boom, gone again. She took the twins with her to Oregon, right? And Walker called her up and said, hey, babe, we're going to reconcile. And guess what? We're going to meet in the Caribbean, right? Where it all started, baby. Come to the Cayman Islands. and We're going to have a great time. Bring the kids, by the way. P.S. Bring the kids. So she goes down there thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to reconcile. I want true love. Boom. He takes the kids on a private jet and leaves the island and leaves her again in the Caribbean. So yeah, he kidnapped the kids, basically. When will she learn? Well, she doesn't, the poor thing. She's flawed too. Some say she was a stripper. She had a bit of a drug problem. She's, she's you know, partier. So over the next few years, the Inmans, their last name was Inman, not Duke, um, would come to employ dozens of caregivers. So at this point, he's like getting a divorce from her. He's got the kids. Uh, he moves them to Wyoming to this uh, framed house on a hilltop. It looked like a ski lodge and it had all these smaller cottages around and there was a tractor trailer on the property. And according to one of the former employees, Teddy Thomas, this is all from a Rolling Stones article, by the way, uh, it was filled with explosives, artillery and enough ammunition to start a small war. In fact, when his, one of his twins, his, um, his son, when his son was like 12, he gave him a tear gas grenade and they, he pulled the pin in the house and didn't realize he couldn't get the pin back in. So he essentially teared gas his whole family. And the kid was laughing about it, which they had this giant, this giant like mansion in the middle of Wyoming filled with this walk-in safe that had Krugerrands and all this like how come it is it is when rich people get money they go buy Krugerrands? Isn't that gold bars from South Africa? I I didn't even know that because I don't know enough rich people. <laughs> I think it's gold bars, yeah. So the kids, so he has the kids, he has all these nannies taking care of them. And one of the nannies on Daisha's request wrote this letter, uh, a blind letter to the court saying. It was chilling. I felt I was watching a gangster movie. Among Hull's first task was to help Walker hang a machine gun on a wall of the cottage where the family was staying, where guns, knives, and swords lay everywhere. Every ashtray in the house overflowed. Every surface was mottled with cigarette burns, and the air hung with smoke. Out of the hay scuttled Walker's new wife, Darley Inman. Darley, you know you're in trouble with a name like Darley. Darley Inman Nee Steinhausen. Was she a baroness and a white trash baroness? <laughs> did you did you watch Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce? No. Oh, it totally reminds me of one of the characters on there, but she's mm. the second wife, but I totally 
I'm Abby McCarthy, and I'm loving life. What's going on with you and Jake? Well, we are taking a break. My marriage is great. Jake is living on the couch if he's not sleeping with a super hot girlfriend. My career, never better. Like a doodles. My book, what a pile of horse. What did you give her? Sales are way down. I'm sorry, but we think the Girlfriend's Guide franchise is dead. Dead? But at least my friends have got my back. Who says we can't wiggle, wiggle, wiggle? You are a great mom. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Divorce sucks. Here's the upside. It's over with Jake. You can move on. We should probably talk about race. You're a jiggle Prefer companion. I had sex with the hot guy. Is your tongue usually that cold? Nobody has a perfect divorce. You've got to lawyer up. We are trying to be on the same team for the kids. Dad found someone awesome. You're just jealous because she's so pretty and young. <sighs> it's been 10 years since you've had a job. I want you out. What's wrong with you? How come I'm the only one acting my age? Grow up, Jake. You grow up. He met her when he picked her up hitchhiking, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> she was a tall, rough-mannered farm girl with straw blonde hair from Wheatland, Wyoming, who scratched and picked at her skin and who was rarely seen by employees until well into the afternoon. Okay, scratching, picking at skin, afternoon, that spells meth probably, to me. I was about to say, she's probably tweaking. So it says, many days, Darlie would hide out in the couple's bedroom, a room that staff dreaded having to clean for its acrid smell and the objects they'd find, white substances, needles, and a blackened, bent back spoon. When they came out, there would be a strange smell, wrote Thomas, adding that he saw drug paraphernalia in the house. Too many times to be specific about date. All of this was going on while the kids, do you know where I want to know where the kids were? I'll tell you where the kids were. The nanny said the most shocking encounter was meeting the twins. As when Ho was ushered to the children's door and the caretaker slid back the deadbolt, yes, a deadbolt from the outside, Staring silently out of that squalid prison cell stood the two toddlers. They were very skinny and had dark circles under their eyes, noted Hole. Several witnesses attest that the kids were locked in their room each night, and according to Hatton, there were food strewn across the floor and a foul smell from where the kids had been relieving themselves in a corner. The children were accustomed to this sort of living. It was all they knew. They'd spent the past three years in Jackson Hole Playground to the rich, living in a $6,000 a month rental home that resembled a glorified drug den. What was it like physically in your house? If I walked in the front door during these times, what did it look like in there? What was the environment like? It smelled horrible. It smelled nasty. Just like it's a bunch of different, imagine putting a bunch of different chemicals together and having it soak through the walls. Was it dirty in there? Describe the food you ate. It's really gross. It's stale. It's not good. Sometimes that's all we had. We had rats in our pantry and that's why I didn't eat anymore because I was so disgusted. Did the food have stuff growing on it? There was mold on it. We had rats that chewed through the cereal box. Where was your dad when this was going on? My dad was never home. And if he was, he was always locked up in his bedroom, smoking meth, doing whatever. So he had no idea. He wasn't down here to protect you. Well, if he did, he was too high to even understand it. I watched my dad overdose like six times. He was helpless. He couldn't help us even if his life depended on it. 
If you did something wrong, how were you punished? I'd be beat really, really bad and locked in my bedroom Who with a deadbolt lock on the outside. My dad used to beat us really bad. What do you call really bad? He would hit us. Physically hit us. With his fist? Where would he hit you? The face and the head. He used to just drop us on our heads because he wanted to make us stupid. He'd pick me up by my ankles. Here you go. He'd pick you up by your ankles like this. Yes, and he would drop me. On your head. And then he tried telling everybody that we had fetal alcohol syndrome. We never did. We... He used to slice my feet up as well. Sliced your feet up? Yes. With what? Knives. On like the bottom of your feet, the tops, all over? Where, where would he cut you? <laughs> Everywhere. He didn't care. Later, when they went to go clean up the house, he says mm -hmm. there was $30,000 in damages, including walls pocked with holes, leather furniture, artwork, and carpeting destroyed. And even after two defoggings, a smoke order so sickening that all the mattresses needed replacing. And I mean, these were the kids' toddler years. They were babies, you know? This is when they needed the attention and the attachment. Yeah. He would fire every like single feral. nanny. I said you are the father of Jane and Michael Banks. You brought your references, I presume. May I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Is that so? We'll have to see about that then, won't we? Now then, the qualifications. Item one, a cheery disposition. I am never cross. And they would abuse them. They would beat them. One witness wrote in an affidavit, the twins' maltreatment had also apparently come at the hands of their father. When plantation caretaker Vic Butch Deer flew in from South Carolina, he'd been stunned at where he found the preschoolers. Walker made them stay in the basement all the time. The basement was covered in feces and it was smeared all over and smelled terrible. It was so bad that I wouldn't leave a dog in this condition. So the new Afton nannies were revived that their little charges were strange due to past abuses. He even told the nannies that they were retarded, which they weren't. Which is a quote because that's not like a term we use now. Yeah, it was. That's what he said. He, he said they were, and they said instead the women were surprised to find the kids were bright and friendly. Like they liked it when the nannies would sit down and read them a book. They were very reactionary to that, which, you know, they had some serious speech delays and all the toys were locked away. They wouldn't give them any toys to play with. It was basically food and feces. That's all they had. The children had limited exposure to their mother this whole time. He was bad mouthing the mother, Daisha. She was living with her family in Utah, I believe. And she was trying, they were constantly in this custody battle and she would have to represent herself because she had no money. And he had all the money in the world to just throw at these lawyers. The legal battles ensued. She never had enough money to fight them. And one in 2002, when one of the nannies brought the kids to this court-ordered visit with Daisha. She said the kids 
loved playing at their mom's house. Like they had toys. They would tell the mother and the nanny how daddy and the nannies hit them and made them bleed. And they begged their mother not to let the mean people hurt them anymore. Quote, Department of Human Services, Department of Child Services, so many reports, they never went to investigate. And I think it had to be because of his name and the money, but they never took these kids away from him. And the kids had a lot of trouble connecting with classmates. So he finally just took them out of school because he wanted to take them like other kids went to summer camp, but he took them to Abu Dhabi to bid millions at auctions to Japan, where their father introduced them to friends who were supposedly Yakuza to Fiji, where dad praised them as they dined on poisonous puffer fish. There were getaways aboard the divine decadence, which was docked in New Zealand, a yacht. And they were in the second grade at this point, And he just said, you're just going to get a tutor, which they never got a good tutor. Tutors would come and go. He would fire tutors. These kids never actually got. Sending them to school probably would be too much of a pain in the ass for him. Plus, that's when like stories of neglect come out and stuff. Yeah. Once you see that there's bruises. So they missed their whole childhood. They missed, you know, who they were, where they were from, what kind of legacy they came from. Then there was one time when he overdosed in the living room and he, before he overdosed, there was a raccoon that came in the living room and he took out a machine gun and just sprayed the wall with the machine gun and killed the raccoon. There were holes everywhere. And he overdosed while the kids were at home. And the little girl, Georgia, was trying to look on the computer to find out how to do CPR so she could save her dad. And she's like, you're going to die. You're going to die. And so he didn't die that time, unfortunately. What a real piece of garbage. Again, reported. Yeah, like how inconvenient he didn't die. Yeah. Again, he was reported to DFS. Again, they did nothing. Dara Lee, the stepmom who was beating them, like she, she even got in a car wreck with them that she created. She was trying to mess with their heads and said, I've never gotten in a wreck with you. And then she started speeding and and turned these tight corners on this dirt road and rolled the car with them in it. She went to rehab. So dad was out of commission because he was always ODing. Dara Lee was in rehab. So they put them with this nanny couple and sent them to Florida. And uh, these guys were on meth too and crack and everything else. And these kids were 11. So they were left with these two people in Florida, the husband, you should send them back to the mom. Yeah, no, they wouldn't. So the husband would stroll the ground, swilling beer and shooting alligators while the wife stringy and unkept with one burst breast implant would get so furious with the children that she once beat them with a steel ladle. The kids were locked in their rooms at night. By day, they wandered the grounds unwatched, heedless of the snakes and alligators, and once had to be rescued from the fast-moving Black River, which they tried to sail in a homemade raft. I think that was a getaway, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so, too. It sounds like Alcatraz. Yeah, so meanwhile, the mom is still trying to get them back, and Walker was so drugged that he couldn't even take care of them. Somehow, he got them back, and in 2010... He died of an overdose. Of course. Finally, Daisha gets her custody. Now, now they're living. Well, we don't know actually what happened to them now. This was 15 and this was about, I would say it's about eight to 10 years ago. They were living in Park City, Utah. She was even on the Dr. Phil show. 
-hmm. And the kids were on the Dr. Phil show on what to do with them. So they filed a lawsuit when they were 18 to against JP Morgan Chase Bank because apparently all their inheritance had disappeared. Bank was giving Daisha money to Daisha thought she needed a $20,000 a month rental. Um, she claimed that she needed a $14 million house. She claimed all these things she needed in the bank was like, she's just not there. It's just not there. So I don't actually know how much money was left. It says Georgia and Patterson Inman were among the wealthiest kids in America. When they turned 21, the family claims the twins claims the twins will inherit a trust fund worth 1 billion. They and their father were the last living heirs to the vast industrial industrial age fortune of the Duke family tobacco tycoons. But that's not the case. Apparently, there is no money left. So they tried to sue. They got nothing. The bank said, I'm sorry, your father was in control of the money. He was essentially entitled to it. It's all gone. He spent everything. And... The, this says the twins believe Citibank improperly distributed income to Walker, their dad, when they knew he was of diminished capacity and a junkie. Surrogate's court judge Nora Anderson wrote in a ruling made public last week. This was in uh, 2000, I think, 15. So we don't really know what happened to them. I have not been able to find anything out in the past eight years. They disappeared from the Internet in 2016. I don't know where they are. What well, happened at to one them. point they got put out of school, right? Cause they couldn't pay their school fees. Yeah. She had, she was trying to pay their private school fees and she couldn't pay it. One of the most, the only last recent article was from 2016 when Patterson Ehrman, the male twin put ghost chili oil in his personal security yes. guards, meatloaf. The security guard ended up needing surgery and was seeking damage. Yes. So he actually got a, bilateral hernia from coughing so much and he was in the hospital he was hospitalized from the ghost chili pepper but the kid started pulling like sadistic pranks that his father would do he he got a lot from his father for sure despite being born into american royalty george's twin brother patterson is haunted by a past filled with horrors that he says he can't erase from his mind he is damaged by that history, yet strangely conflicted about blaming his beloved father because of all the fond memories he has of their extravagant adventures. It was only after I introduced the concept that you can still love a person but not love certain behaviors or choices they made did Patterson give himself permission to really speak candidly about the bad side of a good man when he was speaking of his father. How far back in your life do you remember? What's the earliest recollection you have? Like four years old. What do you remember? I know a couple of things, but they're not, not really pretty. I remember taking a flight to Japan, me and Georgia, my dad. We got off the plane, we, we got in a red vehicle, and we were driving around. We stopped at this restaurant. There was a bunch of yelling in the kitchen. And we see this white guy, and he ran out of the kitchen. They got a hold of him. It was about stealing. Like, I know the story, but I, there's some gaps that are kind of missing. What's all right? Just tell me what you do remember. Well, they put him on a chair, and the chair had big slits in the chair. Before they even put him in the chair, they actually stripped him nude. They, uh, they took his pants off and... Was he strapped in? I believe the men were on both sides of the chair holding his hands down, but 
I do remember that I was really scared. They did stick an object between the slits, and it was a looked like a, it was it looked like a bamboo stick, and they uh, they did it nice and slow, and they just pushed it up, and I could see the green piece of the like the splinters go up, and it was a. Uh, was he screaming? Yes. Like I could not believe. Did he die? Yeah, he died. In the chair? He died in the chair. The, the object went all the way through it. I turned him into a kebab. What did you say to yourself at the time? Do you remember what you thought? I was scared. I know that I was crying. Like you know, I was, I was, I was terrified. I was. I got to like grab onto my father, you know, and hold him, and brush me away. Why do you think he would allow you to be there for something like that? I think this whole thing was about stealing and teaching me a lesson at four years old. What happens when you steal? Which really didn't teach me. Jack actually didn't teach me anything. I think it really messed with my head like a lot. Well, you remember it today. Yeah. And I didn't really watch the Dr. Phil interviews. It was just mm-hmm. Daisha talking about how he left me no money. I tried to get the kids back, but they just disappeared from the face of the earth. Those kids, I mean, think about it. Cause I mean, I know you were looking on Instagram and Facebook, but when they tried to take the kids that the they, kids actually had resisted, they yeah. were throwing rocks and they even pulled a gun when Daisha pulled up to the Wyoming estate with a court order, two ambulances and a squad of police cars to try to rescue them. And they fought them. They had to be taken to a children's psychiatric facility because they were so inundated yeah, with. That's right. I mean, they had such a feral childhood and they were, it, they have parental alienation indoctrination. Yeah. It, it's really hard at that age to really, they'll always have a mistrust of the adults, particularly the adults, the mother, even no matter what she does, there's always going to be that underlying voice in their head. She was also trying to get a $29 million ranch for her kids. They say you make demands for money for these children and have no receipts. I used to send them receipts, but it's so damned hard. But you um, have receipts. But I have four May I boxes see the of receipts. May I see the receipts? Patterson, what about the bags and boxes? I've got them out in the garage, actually, the boxes of receipts. Okay, this is just from a couple weeks. <laughs> so you have kept receipts. I- I've got here a trash can bag uh, full of receipts, this basket full of receipts, this basket full of receipts. <laughs> you spend money, you keep the receipt. Yes. Because these people are trying to suggest that you're doing other than a prudent job. Right. Uh, of managing this. Right. You've got this battle with these banks that are characterizing you as being imprudent with the money and therefore making it difficult on the children and on you, and you want to challenge that. And I assume you're willing to do that with full transparency. That's right. And that's hard when you're dealing with multi-billion dollar concerns and they won't allow the trust to engage independent counsel even. My children have had uh, no access to evaluations and mental health treatment. I've had no due process. You're looking at uh, human rights violations when a child is denied 
mental health treatment. And we've had Matt Grimmer, wonderful attorney that's been involved, never, and then the trustees said they were gonna pay him, never paid him, and they still are not allowing my children counsel. Now, why? Well, the funny thing, well, it's not funny, but they were hospitalized for a few months in Wyoming before they went to their mom. Months. I, it was close to a year. Yep. And I just don't understand how they can disappear. I'm really curious if anyone out there knows what happened to the Inman twins. The stepmom still has rights to reside in both of Walker's properties. And the twins claim that some of the yeah. father's pricier possessions are being auctioned offline. But I do hope that you do contact the authorities if anybody's being abused. I do have to say that. Yes, too. yes, absolutely. Contact the authorities and follow through. Apparently, Dara Lee, the stepmom, gets the plantation too. She gets the plantation. She gets the Wyoming house. She gets it all. I don't. I don't think he even left a will. I don't think he left anything. At fifteen, the twins still believed in Santa Claus, yes. and Georgia claimed to have felt her dad's her dead father's presence. I'm so curious to see what happened to them or where they are, or even if they're still alive, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. There's some definite, I mean, such a feral upbringing. It's really sad. What a shocking and horrible story though. Just the story of there with so much money and they're locked in a basement. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. The next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it. Just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out MissDeedsAndIntriguePodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. The podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guests co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which carry 
Misdeeds or Intrigue podcast or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.